blood flow from the white man as high as the horse of Bright, and the six of the stable. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, and with them the wrath of God is finished. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast and its image, the number of its name, and standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked at the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven, and as the sanctuary came, the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, the golden sashes around their chests. Okay, in a minute we're going to look at the passage, but before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. Once we get to the end of the sermon, there'll be opportunities to ask questions and make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. So I want to mention that now, so you know that there are opportunities to be there. So do have to think about your questions. Another thing to mention is the sermon outline. Uh, that is in your service sheet, which you can see the way in. Obviously, that's helpful to use it. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this remarkable vision that you've given to John. We thank you that it reveals to us what is happening now and what will happen. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, we might understand them, that we might be better place to endure as we keep the commandments of God and our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, so by Revelation, we have had the opening of the seven seals. Then there's been the blowing of the seven trumpets. We're about to come to the seven bowls that are poured out. We've seen how the seven seals focus on Souls cry out, and God comforts them while they await their vindication. The seven trumpets focus on the judgment of those who have rebelled against God. And the plagues that we read there, they resemble the plagues found in the Exodus. The seven bowls will continue to resemble the plagues found in the Exodus that we come across next week. In between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, we have song. It's found here in 15 verses 2 to 4. It's sung by all those who conquered the beast. It's a song that's called the Song of Moses, the Servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, as you see in verse 3. And the words of the song are this. So we read from verse 3b. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways. 
those inclinations. Who will not fear, O Lord, to glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. So we have plenty to sign of this song that resemble those that happened in Exodus. And we have a song of song that's called the Song of Moses. The final judgment brings to mind the mighty acts that God brought upon Pharaoh. And the purpose of those mighty acts back then was that God might be known. So in Exodus 7 verse 5, what we read earlier on, we read how the Egyptians will know the Lord. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. If we go further back in Exodus 6 verse 7, we read how the Israelites will know the Lord. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But will the Egyptians and the Israelites know the Lord in the same way? Or both have seen the same mighty acts? And both are left to conclude that there is no other God that has the power over creation the Yahweh. The result of the Exodus is Israel has been rescued and brought out of Egypt. And Pharaoh has been punished for his refusal to recognize the Creator. By the end of the Exodus, Pharaoh's heart is hardened one last time, and he sends his army to pursue the Israelites. And God destroys Pharaoh's army and brings his people out on dry ground. After which the Egyptians know that there is no one who can compare to the God of Israel. It isn't to say that they turn to worship him and worship him alone. But they do recognise that Pharaoh is no match for Yahweh. Here in today's passage we have the same distinction. But the people are now distinguished by whose mark is upon their forehead. There are 144,000 who have the name of the Lamb, the name of the Father, on their children. And they play harps to praise God because he has won victory over the beast. Whereas the other group, they have the mark of the beast on their forehead. They are unable to praise God. The song that's sung is a song that they do not know. Only those who are part of the 144,000 will learn this song. And the singing of the 144,000 is followed by three angels that bring each a message. The first angel brings an eternal gospel, which can be found in 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel directly overhead with the eternal gospel to the plain. To those who follow her, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, May God give them glory, 
because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him is made heaven and earth, sing and sweet to you. It's a gospel that's primarily a warning about the judgment that will take place. For Christians that hear this eternal gospel, there will be an encouragement for them to remain faithful to God. It's been suggested that the various times when Revelation uses the term those who dwell on earth, as we can see here in 14 verse 6, always refers to unbelievers. You see, unbelievers they dwell or sit. As they sit, it's intended to suggest a persistent resistance against the proclamation of the gospel. They sit in their self-confidence, in their world values. And so God brings his judgment upon those that sit steadfast in the world values and reject God's values. And the second angel brings his message. It speaks of Babylon and how Babylon has fallen. If you remember back in the day, Israel was in exile to Babylon. It was an ungodly city. It was a place where the people of Israel could easily find themselves compromising their commitment to God. We see it particularly in Daniel 1 to 6. When the people of God resisted the pressure to behave as expected, the people were persecuted. And the believers in John's day were in a similar position. His Christian contemporaries faced pressure to perform. It was Rome that was now the new Babylon. Likewise, we live at a time when the church has compromised in many ways. The society puts pressure on the church to accept its values. And so all world systems of the wicked take on a symbolic name of Babylon. Verse 8 speaks of the unbelievers drunk on the wine of sexual morality. This helps us clarify what's meant earlier in verse 4. Let's have a quick look at verse 8 to remind us what that is. Another angel, the second, follows, saying, Fall and fall is Babylon, great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passions of sexual morality. Then if we go back to verse 4, it says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been redeemed from mankind's first fruits for God and their Lamb. The 144,000 are said to be those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, this doesn't mean the 144,000 are unmarried. But rather it's referring to the fact that they haven't adopted the practices encouraged by the fertility gods or taken part in sexual morality in the city represented by the term Babylon, the great. Now the message from the third angel is about to come. All those that worship the beast will drink the wine of God's wrath. So having one willingly drunk the wine of Babylon, 
they will now be made to drink God's wine. The punishment is the crime. If Babylon's wine was intoxicating, though only temporary, God's wine will become more potent. This effect will not wear off or will be turned. And again, there's another contrast between the experience of those with the land of the feast with those with the land's name on their foreheads. Verse 11 sees the eternal smoke of torment where no rest will be found. But then in verse 13, rest is given to those who are blessed if they die in the Lord. And then in verse 14 we see one like the Son of Man sat on a cloud. And then what follows is the harvest. As we read through verse 14 to the end of chapter 14, there appears to be two harvests, 15 to 16 being the first, and 17 to 19 as the second. The question is, are these two descriptions of the same harvest, or are they two different harvests? Well, some people suggest they're two different harvests. And they would say the first would be gathering the gathering of the while the second is the gathering and punishing the wicked. Contrary to this idea, apparently the only allusion to such a harvest is found in the Old Testament. It's found in Joel 3, verse 13, which reads like this Put in a sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread. The wine press is full, the vats overflow, and the evil is great. And so, since Joel uses the harvest imagery, uses it for judgment, it maybe makes most sense to think that both of these harvest metaphors in Revelation are to judgment. Now, as we said at the start, these events parallel those events that occurred in the Exodus. God's amazing deeds are seen both by those who serve him and those who harden their hearts against him. Those just and true ways, the same acts seen by both groups of people. But for one group of people, it causes them to endure as they take a firm hold of the truth that is theirs in the world. While the other group, though they see the same acts, they choose to further harm them further harden their hearts against the Creator. Of course, there's a distinction to be made between Exodus and final judgment. And the Exodus, it was the Israelites, just one nation, who was redeemed. But God had chosen them as one nation to bring blessing to all nations. But the final judgment, all nations will come and worship. It won't be just Israel, my God. All nations will know the mighty acts of God because of his redemption now from out to the ends of the earth. Of the 144,000, those that are taught the song, they have this seal on their forehead. They are blessed and they will be given rest from their labors, and they will be from all nations. Now, God's act, righteous acts have been revealed. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your salvation has gone out to that earth. And now your people, your 144,000, made up of representatives. We thank you that though we still live in this time where your people are persecuted, are holding true. We first of all ask that you help them to endure our first person we also thank you and praise you. We await and look forward to the day. Amen. 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 Yes, Susan. Yes, the question is uh, 50 verse 1 who are the seven angels and the seven plagues? So I think that refers to the seven angels. So they're kind of introduced and forced to get them as in the moment we get to the 16. People that conquered the beast, so these different people are they the saints or who are these people? Yes. Excellent. So, just a big question. Uh, so, in 15 verse 2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast of its image, the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb saved. And so, the question is, who are the those who have conquered the beast? Are they the same or some other people? So I think, well, I think it makes the most sense to see those who conquered the beast as being the same as the 144,000. So this we think in terms of, I guess just to make it explicit, the 144,000 have to include all believers, otherwise you have more problems than you solve. Because the 144,000 here, back in 14 verse 1, they're those ones who've got the name of the Father written on their foreheads. So we would assume that all Christians have the name of the Father on their forehead. Um, 
going on, it keeps referring to the sort of reportable analysis and as it adds on different things that they experience. It wouldn't want to be saying that some Christians will experience that, but Christians will experience that. And then we, when we come to those who conquered the beast, yeah, we take it to meet that same group of people who have endured and remained. And I guess here you're getting a further glimpse of what we read back in Genesis 3 about serpent motion. And then what is somewhere in Luke, I think, where you get um, the mention of the treading of the serpents. Um, or maybe not. Sharp sickle in his hand, 
Interestingly, verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, put in your sickle and reach the gap to reap his come, the harvest of the earth is upon your life. So he sat in the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the question being, who is the one who sits on the cloud? Couple of things spring to mind. So we know that in Daniel 7, there's a son of man who comes in the clouds, and he is the one that is uh, given authority. So I was about to have a bit of interesting to recognize that one who sits on the son of clouds, who's the son of man, as being Jesus. And then we might have a little bit of um, confusion here because we have, if verse 14, is Jesus. In verse 50 we get an angel who commands him to reap. So we might feel a little bit uncomfortable. Why is an angel commanding Jesus? Surely that's not what I don't But then what is he commanding Jesus and his Jesus to do? Well, he's commanding him to reap. The, the final judgment has come. And Jesus himself says he doesn't know when that's going to happen because that's the will of the Father. So it could be that the angel is the Father's messenger who sends the message to the Son that now the time has come. So yeah, I think it makes most sense to take the Son of Man to be another uh, example of Jesus. Or Excellent, you seem to have got through question time without too many bruises. <laughs> right then, let's see then. We mentioned earlier the pressure that was placed upon the people of Israel to fall when they were taken captive in Babylon. In one example, when Daniel's friends refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, the consequence is to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar lays down this challenge. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The Creator challenges the Creator into a duel. But before we find out what happens, what is particular of interest is the response to Daniel's friends' supply. They say this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, being known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image, says that. Then we know the account and how God does save Daniel's man. But what is pertinent is the justification for not bowing down to the idols. It's not based upon the belief that we say, they in no way presume upon God. Which is important because those souls that cry to God under the altar, they weren't spared. The assumption both then and now isn't that God will save all his people from persecution. Rather, the purpose is that we might see that when pressured to compromise, they would not betray their worship of their Creator. 
because the creator alone is worthy to be praised. We can answer this the words that Jesus speaks in Matthew 10, verse 20. Do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Rises, our commitment to God will be rewarded. It may not prevent the persecution now, but one day God will vindicate his people. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you have chosen us to be a part of your people. Give us the power we need to remain faithful. Help us not to conform and not to compromise. Keep us to endure to the end. Amen. Amen.